Good evening and welcome to episode eight of the Granite Cornerstone podcast. Tonight, I am joined by the Right Worshipful Grand Lecturer of the Grand Lodge of New Hampshire, Right Worshipful Brother Chris Busby. Chris, welcome. You're muted. Okay, maybe it's me. And also joining us is the Right Worshipful District Deputy Grand Master of the Second Masonic District, Right Worshipful Brother Scott Newberry. Scott, welcome. Hey, Tim. Nope, it's not me. It's Chris. Yeah, I can't hear him either. Maybe that's for the better. <laughs> Just bear with us here, folks, as uh, Chris tries to sort out his technical difficulties. But while he's doing that, I would like to say we welcome all feedback. And since Scott's going to yell at me to do this at the end, I'll do it here at the beginning as well. Please, brethren, if you have any feedback, if you have any ideas for episodes, send us an email at Granite Cornerstone at NewHampshireGrandLodge.org. And since that pushes everybody's face up, I'll just leave that there for the remainder of this episode. We are looking for topics to discuss in our upcoming episodes, and we would love to hear from our audience. So thank you for being here, and thank you for sending us some feedback. Now, to be All fair, right. Tim, I would not yell at you. I just text you heavily. Fair enough. Chris, welcome back. Can you hear me? Yes. Very good. Thank you, Tim, and I'm glad to be here this evening, and I'm glad that everything is finally working. You know, I really, I should have just taken the opportunity just to play my Chris Busby soundboard and pretend like you were You here. should have. You should have. Um, so, everybody, thank you for being here tonight. The uh, title of this episode is, it's more than just a title. So, we are here to discuss uh, that chair behind Chris's head, which is the master's chair and what it means to be master of the lodge. And I think this is a, a great way to cap off the series that we've been discussing about a, a brother's journey into the lodge uh, through his degrees and then how to keep them uh, in the lodge because a lot of that has to do with, with some heavy influence from the master. So let's talk about being master. I think the, the best question to, to kick this off is what is the role of a master of a lodge? Ooh, right, Chris. I always, no, I always let you go first, Chris. <laughs> Maybe you should go first today. No, I insist. The role of the master of the lodge, um, right worshipful brother Joe Beaumont, who is one of my mentors, um, told me very early on, I think not too long after I was raised, that, that the role of the master is to be a benevolent dictator. Um, you know, being the master of a Masonic Lodge is a very different sort of enterprise than being the leader of a lot of other things or simply being a manager. Uh, we have very specific uh, duties and responsibilities uh, in a lodge, and the master is, is, is really does control the lodge. Uh, and so, you know, the, one of the important things about being master is sort of setting, setting your vision and having brothers uh, be on board with the ride. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, being even-handed and being uh, and being firm where you need to. But uh, it's a hard balance uh, to meet all of those things. Um, it is not sort of uh, a democratic process necessarily. You know, the master does have to uh, have to very strongly lead the lodge. But also um, the other side to that, uh, in my view, uh, in meeting on the level is is making sure that you do so with 
with grace and, and a certain amount of humility. I think when we talked about this episode before, I, I mentioned that I, I believe truly that it is an exercise in humility. And I look at uh, the seat of being uh, the, the chair of master as sort of the, you know, the next degree, the next class uh, in Freemasonry, because you learn so much in that chair in a very short period of time. Uh, it, I would agree with you on a lot of that, Chris. It, the master's chair is one of those chairs where you're never fully prepared for it. It doesn't matter how much you think you're prepared. Yeah. And then you get to it and it sinks in. Wait a minute, now I have to do all this other stuff. And you don't realize it there. Uh, you know, I when I left the East, I, I thanked the Lodge for, you know, for all the work they did. Because really, the master's just in charge of... You can think of it as steering the ship or depending on what your lodge is, herding cats, um, you know, because it's trying to get everybody on the same page and getting everybody to work in the same unified direction more than it is anything else. Uh, so there's an awful lot of learning how to communicate well and a lot of compromise. You know, you say it's a benevolent dictatorship and that's the benevolent part. You have to be able to work with everybody right. in the lodge and come to a somewhat of a consensus but knowing that ultimately it's your responsibility to make the decision. And, you know, as we've heard from so many people, you know, the buck stops here as far as the master's concerned. I like the, the viewpoints that the two of you brought up. I mean, yes, it is definitely a benevolent dictatorship. The master wraps his gavel. And, and at the end of the day, what he says is, is what, what goes as long as it's within the, the confines of the bylaws or the constitution of the grand lodge. But to Scott's point, Yes, a master can can do whatever he wants within the confines of those documents. But how how valuable to a master's role is compromise? Because when you look at master of the lodge, really you are a servant leader. You serve the lodge. Yeah. You're there for a very short period of time in, in the grand scheme of things. Most most lodges uh, that I'm familiar with are a two year term, and we have a couple of one year terms here um, in New Hampshire. But you are a steward of an immense amount of history and tradition and for master to break that tradition or, or to deviate from it has certainly has consequences. So, so what level of, of being a master do you have to compromise and, and where do you draw the line with your compromise? Well, I, I think that, you know, one of the things, you know, you have to, the, the members of the lodge and the officers of the lodge have to want to go with you on the ride. Right. So, you know, as, as as much as I reinforce the benevolent dictatorship piece of it, and to Scott's point, you, you know, you have to get everyone on board and and or, you know, you have to get the, you know, the message out and, and make sure that the brethren want to do the things that that you're hoping to do and accomplish the things that you're wanting to accomplish. Otherwise, it ends up being, uh, you know, you're sort of chasing your own tail. Um, and, and you're going to end up feeling as though that you're alone if, if the rest of the lodge isn't, isn't with you, at least to some degree. And the second part of your question, you said, re repeat that again for me, Tim. You, you said something about if, if what sort of that line is as far as. Yeah. When, when does the compromise stop? At what point do you as master have to realize that the compromising is costing either you or your lodge? It's the harmony of the lodge. Yeah, it's the harmony of the lodge. It's exactly it. Because I mean, ultimately, you know, the masters, I think one of the masters really most important roles um, 
amidst a lot of different responsibilities is to maintain the harmony of the lodge, which, which means, you know, we talk about this in our ritual, don't want to go into any detail, but, you know, uh, you know, making sure uh, that we all best agree um, together. Um, and again, that does not mean that we're all going to agree with each other. It does not mean that, that you're always going to agree with the master, but it is sort of that, that, that that dignified the way that we work with each other on the level the dignified way of being able to disagree with each other and yet uh respecting the chair of master in the way that once a decision is made um that that's really that's really it right you know you have to you have to move forward from that point but i think that i think that ultimately maintaining that harmony uh amidst agreement and disagreement is 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 key well, I, I think the, the harmony piece, it, it depends on the lodge culture, really. I mean, you know, you can maintain harmony without disagreement because in a lot of cases, I feel that harmony can be preserved just by giving every brother their due opportunity to speak on the, the topic at hand. You know, if you're going to do a particular project or not do a particular project, a lot of brothers will be happy with whatever the decision is as long as they get an opportunity to speak to it. And I think that's where a lot of the the challenge of a master comes from is because so often, and we're all guilty of it, we want, oh, I want to get project X done. And you just want to get started. You want to get it done. But you've got to take that extra. And this is that compromise. I want to get it done now, but I'll hold off for another month. I'm not happy about it. I really want to get it accomplished. But by the same token, I got to give that, that month to the lodge for them to think about it, to understand it, and to give those brothers that opportunity. Ultimately, it's going to be the master's decision what they do, but you want to give that that space for the lodge to, so that you can build that harmony around everybody agreeing to either agree or disagree. And I think it's funny, Chris. You said feel alone if you if you you know rush ahead and go to make a decision without the consensus or the the support of your brethren. And sometimes it's not a feeling. Sometimes if you go ahead and make a decision to throw an event or a fundraiser, you can be literally alone. So it, it, it's really interesting. To me, because I, you know, I, I'm a manager in my day job and I know that, uh, you know, we've all got some level of, of management experience, but I can make my employees show up. Otherwise, you know, they don't get paid, but we're a volunteer organization. And I think that plays a real big role in understanding that all of those skills you may learn in the workplace, a lot of them apply, but they don't always fit the mold of Freemasonry. It's a unique organization. It's yeah. the authority piece. You know, you know, as master, you have a certain level of authority over your lodge, but it's not the same as being a manager of an organization in the real world. I, you know, in the real world, you could say you will be here at 8 a.m. And that's the way the, the job is. If you tell a lodge you will be here at 7 p.m. for a lodge meeting, it's still their choice whether they show up. You know, you hope that they're going to maintain the commitment because they've made that commitment. But ultimately, it's the individual's choice to what to do. Yeah, and I think I think the 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 why aspect of all of this, right? I yeah. mean, oftentimes, and, and some of it is just to also educate brethren that might not know. I mean, we we have new brothers that join, become new master masons in our lodges every day, and so you know, masters need to explain and mentor in that in that way so that so that all the brethren in the line junior uh, below 
master as well as the brethren understand why we have to do the things that we do and and have a better understanding as to the responsibilities of a master because again these these guys aren't getting we're not paying them right you know the the wages of a of a mason are different and 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 we have to be conscious of 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 what you know brethren are expecting uh, out of their master and out of their lodge and explain you know in those instances when there are things that are uh you know especially more challenging in the process of decision making um that communication uh is is i think very crucial and and i can tell you look i've 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 made that mistake as master, right? You know, uh, the communication or lack thereof um, is uh, can can really make or break uh, a particular project or an initiative that the lodge is trying to do, or or your entire term as master. Uh, but we have to learn lessons as we as we go through. Um, no one, you know, it's different. Right? when you get up there, it's different. We all think that you know, as we're sitting here in lodge and through sitting in all of the other chairs that when we're observing that, oh, well, you know, okay, I understand that. That doesn't look that bad. But then there are those other elements that um, that are really sort of experiential in being in the role that, that are a little bit harder to communicate. All right. So let's talk about that real quick. So the three of us have sat in the East, two of us in the chair that is right behind Chris. Um, are you purposely cutting me out like that? I mean, you know, just because I haven't sat there. You I, you have sat there. You have sat there. It's just a deputy grandmaster. <laughs> it's not as the master of the lodge. So you made, a, you made a good point, Chris, that you can prepare all you want as you're going through the chairs. And then once you're there, it's a wholly different experience. What was the most surprising thing to you as master sitting in these for your first time? Ooh, that's a tough one. I, I think you know it's 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 an instant the 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 way that the brethren look at you does change. I think pretty much immediately, and I think that that's a human reaction. Um, you know, you expect it, you know it intellectually that that's going to happen, um, but when it actually does happen, and you're sitting in the east, and you have all of these eyes looking to, to you um for 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 guidance um on on many different manners and and for direction um and then then it really it really sort of it hits you in a way that it doesn't in any other chair uh, i mean for in my case you know i would i the the gravity of the move through the chairs hit me first when i sat as junior warden because you know, you mm. sit there, and at the time I was going through the chairs, the lodge I, I belonged to was a one-year lodge. So I mean, I'm looking at you know two years and I'm master of the lodge, you know, two heartbeats and I'm the master of the lodge. So it, it, it that's where the first gravity hit. But I think it, like to your point, Chris, I, I it's the same thing when you first sit in that east in the east and you look out and you're about to hit that gavel for the first time as master, it does you know the the gravity of the office finally starts to sit in, and you know. I happen to have had the, the luxury, if you want to call it that, of, you know, my father was a master of a lodge. And, you know, you would think that even going through the chairs and with being able to talk to him about different stuff, I'd be better prepared. No, it, it, it was it was just that the same type of 
culture shock. You know, you sit there and go, okay, now everybody's looking at me. What do we do next? Uh, you know, and it's, it is, it's, it really changes your perspective when you move to that chair. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think for me, it was just the amount of things that a master does that the lodge never sees that the senior warden never sees. There are so many phone calls that I got or phone calls that I had to make to Scott when he was DDGM and phone calls that I got from Scott that I never could have anticipated in any of my planning over the course of the 10 years that I sat in the chairs. And I think that understanding what a master needs to do to effectively run his lodge, it's not just meetings. It's not just rehearsals. At any time on any day, you can get a phone call that's going to throw everything out of whack and you have to go and deal with it. Whether it's it's a Masonic funeral that needs to get arranged, which, you know, I think that sits with me because it was the first task I had as a master. I was installed on a Saturday and I had to hold a, a Masonic funeral the next day. And and it was a, a very high profile Masonic service that had several people there who were going to watch me for my first official act as master. And that was that was intimidating and something I certainly didn't anticipate. But the number of phone calls I got and the number of, of situations you have to deal with is is not something you can prepare for as you're you're ascending through the chairs. No, and I think it's one of the things that, you know, I wish I had done better uh, when I sat as master with the rest of the line is try to be more transparent with those things that I could be transparent with. You know, because there's just certain things that as a master, it's your job to deal with it. And it's the buck stops there, so to speak. But, you know, I feel I could have done a better job with the, the wardens and the deacons and trying to get them more involved with these are the day-to-day -day operations so that they're better prepared to handle stuff when they move through the chairs. You know, it's it's something that, you know, I think more of us than we get to the east wish we had had, had when we went through the chairs. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, so there's a question in the chat from from uh, Brian Ellis that I think is is interesting. Taking the East without going through the chairs, is that an advantage or a disadvantage? And I think universally the answer would be uh, a disadvantage. I don't want to speak for the two of you, but I can't imagine that going through the master without any other office or, or beyond the minimum requirement of six months as a warden uh, is something any of us would want to do. Well, I mean, it really depends on, um, so we're talking about a progressive line versus a non-progressive line. And, and, and you'll see that in, in many jurisdictions and many different lodges. You don't, I don't think you really see that here, except maybe in one lodge in the state, but, um, it really depends on, you know, the progressive line is meant to be a journey in which, um, I've heard it explained to me, you know, as sort of a, you know, uh, you know, a six, seven, five, six, seven year internship, you know, however long it takes you to get to the East um, or the Grand East to be able to learn how uh, lodges are run, learn sort of about the, the constitution and understanding how, how, how productive meetings are run, um, how to be able to, you know, run degrees properly um, you know, dealing with all of these sorts of different things. I think that if you, is it possible for a brother that is a knowledgeable, experienced brother who has not served in any other chair uh, to be master? Um, is that possible? I think it is, but I think that 
without sort of the um, education that you receive doing those other roles, it, it can become far more challenging. Well, yeah, I, and there is an instance, uh, Chris, where the line doesn't play a role. And that's someone who's already sat, like Tim said, six months as a right. warden here, or they've sat as master of a lodge already. Right. Now, yep. in those cases, uh, if it is not the lodge you are a normal member of, like you've transferred into an area and you become a member of a lodge and you stand and are elected master, I think that is a massive disadvantage at that point. The brother, I, I have served as master of a lodge, not necessarily in this jurisdiction, not necessarily, you know, even in this country. You know, if you're a recognized jurisdiction, you're a recognized jurisdiction. But if I get elected as master of a lodge and I don't know your members, I don't know your culture, I don't know your traditions. Yeah, that's... it's a massive disadvantage. Oh, and at that point, you're, you're you can take harmony and almost throw it out the window because yeah. anything you do is probably going to run counter to what the lodge is used to doing or used to seeing. And while some of that's good, it, may, it causes people to rethink stuff and it very well could help the lodge grow overall. That year or two years that that individual is in the East could be a huge disadvantage for the lodge. We've talked a lot about culture in the last three episodes, and, and it's come up at least three times again today. How, I, I don't know, I, I guess that what I want to say is, what is the master's role uh, in regards to the culture of his lodge? Obviously, you've got to respect that culture, but are there aspects of that culture that a master should actively try and change if he thinks that they're not uh, best suited for the lodge? Are there those traditions? I mean, we've all seen the memes about that's not how we did it in my day. And sometimes that that's a very real statement. How does a master interact with the culture of a lodge and, and influence culture of the lodge without disregarding the sanctity of a lodge's culture? Well, I, I, like you said, I think it depends on what the aspect is. You know, a lot of times, you know, we always, you see the meme that, you know, says, you know, well, that's not the way we did it in my year. And I'll be honest with you, in some cases, that's actually helpful advice that follows afterwards. And it's really difficult when you're in the heat of the moment, when you're trying to accomplish something, it's sometimes you don't realize that what you're getting is actually good advice. Uh, but you have to take a look at what your culture is and then make a conscious decision. And usually you have a couple of brothers that are willing to go with you if you're going to go against the grain. Uh, and it really depends on what it is. Will, will it help your uh, lodge? Um, I'll use my own lodge as an example. When I came over to the second district, we didn't do a lot of traveling. Now the lodge is a fairly, it's one of the lodges that does a fairly large amount of traveling. I i played some small part of that because I would, you know, when I went through the line, I said, hey guys, you want to go over to such and such a lodge? Or hey, visitation site, let's go. Uh, you know, it was a culture item that needed to change and it helped the lodge grow. It expanded our knowledge of what's going on in the district. It expanded our, our ways of looking at ritual, you know, because not every lodge does everything exactly the same so that, you know, you could take away some stuff that you think might be a good idea for your lodge. Uh, so I think the, it really depends on the cultural item that you're looking at. And, and what you're trying to, and what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there are things that, you know, I, I think that we've all seen that, that are clearly, you know, beneficial to a brother or group of brothers or beneficial to a lodge and things that might, that might hinder the growth of a lodge. And so it, 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 it stands to reason that sort of a discussion of 
what what things you know might be more antiquated in in an approach or something that used to work you know years ago that doesn't work now i think having that discussion ultimately you know even even in a situation where and actually uh my lodge did this at one point you know where we had sort of a town hall situation where we we got the brothers together young and old and and sat down and talked about sort of you know the challenges and the perspectives of those various brothers coming for different reasons and from different times in their Masonic journey and listening to what they're saying. And I think that if you're, you're listening and I saw right wishful Kramer, um, you know, mention this, you know, sort of listening, listening to, to learn and to gain knowledge rather than just to respond. Um, so that we sort you, you listening to the members of your lodge and again, if you're listening to them and you're starting to have ideas as you're coming up through the line and starting to plant some of those seeds as you go along in, in that process and maybe slowly starting to implement with obviously the permission of the master, some of those items that by the time that you get to the East, every, you know, I don't want to say everyone's on board, right? But, you know, you, you, you've done the job to be able to let you know, to, to give the, the brethren time to be able to assimilate a change and then to go with you. They might not completely agree, but you, you'll see a lot less, I think, resistance because what you do end up finding the, it's not, you know, it, it wasn't that way in my year is when you're kind of trying to hit hard with a very abrupt and sudden change, which can be a shock to anyone because human beings don't like change, uh, not just Masons. And so, uh, and so we have, you have to sort of make it a longer term project, but you also have to understand, you know, as you go through the line, um, sort of a, a general outline of what, what you do hope to accomplish. But it, it's not just right when you get to the master's chair that that happens. It's, it's with your fellow officers and it's a, long, a longer course, which is why, again, sort of the, uh, the progressive line helps to that end. Well, so you you just said this now, Chris. When do you start planning as master for your, your term as master? <laughs> Let's say you've got a two-year term. Boy, I'm step I'm stepping in it every every way. Well, know? I mean, I'll be I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, I can't speak for Chris, but you know, um, I started when I was junior deacon. Uh, I when I when I started sitting as senior de as as junior deacon, I, I <laughs> well, still, well, good night, guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, keep in mind, keep in mind though, my lodge was a one year lodge at that time, so right. I'm looking at a, a you know, for my case, it's it's a fairly short time between junior deacon and master. Uh, but I also had the, the, uh, the family history where, you know, my dad was a master of his lodge and I remember, you know, vaguely the, the, the stuff that he was going through, you know, he didn't give me any details cause I wasn't a Mason at, yeah, at that point. But, uh, I remember the number of nights out the phone calls and, and, you know, it wasn't really an email time back then, but, uh, you know, I remember all the stuff that he went through. So I hit junior deacon. And when they finally installed me as junior deacon, you know, I bought a constitution, I bought a manual and started reading and studying and started to work on, you know, working to know the other members of the lodge, especially the past masters, you know, and then I started to say, okay, well, what, what would I like to do when I get to the East? And I put kind of like big block items, you know, it's like, I'd like to do this, or I'd like to do that uh, and kind of block it that way because I knew I couldn't fill in dates. I couldn't fill in specifics until I got closer to the East. Cause at that time, I wasn't even sure I was going to get to the East. Cause let's face it, you just never know. Anything can happen between the time you start going through the line and when you finally get to the East. 
I was relatively certain because St. Mark's pretty much moved everybody through the line, the progressive line that we've been talking about. Uh, but I, I knew I, if I didn't start then, I wouldn't start until I sat east, literally at my first meeting going, okay, now what do I do? I know Chris has got a different opinion because he always does. No, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I think you need to have sort of at least a broad sense by the time you've seen your deacon. Um, and for some lodges and some brothers, that might be your first. I mean, I, that was my first role. Um, that was my first installed office was senior deacon. And it's an extraordinarily important chair. Um, and I, I think, you know, before you head into the elected chairs, I think you need to at least have a loose outline of, of what you hope to accomplish. Um, but again, and I want to reinforce that, don't hold those ideas to yourself. Um, it, it, you know, sometimes we get into this, you know, uh, I think we're all guilty of it to some degree. We're like, oh, you know, I want to run with this one particular idea. It's a great idea. But, you know, before you're in that role, maybe the lodge could benefit and maybe you can start moving things along along those lines. So I, I think having sort of a broad outline of that, but to your point, Scott, um, you need to have enough flexibility in your plans for things not to work the way you want them to. Because oh, yeah. if, if you that's don't, why I then, kind of that's why I big right. blocked it. Yeah, you and, and you have to. I think. I think once you get, you know, into, you know, you know, again, it depends on a one year or two year lodge. But once you get into, you know, the warden space, like we, you know, my lodge is a two year lodge. So certainly by the time that you get to be senior warden, you have two years to, you know. Uh, to, to plan, but also plan with the general current culture of the lodge going back to culture. Because if you plan, start planning six years out, uh, lodges can change pretty significantly. You know, we say that masonry moves slowly, but, you know, it doesn't take more than a few things to happen over the course of that period of time for the culture to shift. It could be new brothers coming in or brothers leaving or, or passing away, you know, shifting responsibilities. Someone steps out of line unexpectedly. I, I, I have seen cultures change several times in a 10 year span. It, it's just, it depends on the membership at the time. It depends on the leadership at the time. Yeah. You know, you can go from being a lodge that's interested in history to a lodge that's, you know, more interested in community service to a lodge that, you know, it has another idea of what they want to do. So it's very easy to see a culture shift rapidly even though the underlying tenets, the underlying ritual, the underlying history is still the same. And I think that's important in that as you're planning, you reevaluate every time the master changes or every time something significant happens in your lodge because your plan should be shifting. You know, when I came into the East, I sat down with my senior warden and my junior warden and we developed a six-year plan. The three of us, indicated the goals that we wanted to accomplish uh, as we were in the East or progressing to the East or, or whatever the situation may be. And then when I stepped out of the East uh, just this past year, the senior warden who was the incoming master held another meeting with myself, the incoming senior warden and the incoming junior warden to determine the next six years and I think this is, you know, we've uh, our brother who is controlling the Meridian Lodge YouTube page. I don't know who it is there. I bet um, you that that's right, Worshipful Ben Feldman. Okay. Um, 
as with any project, there are stakeholders and the officers behind you are stakeholders in getting your project completed. I think that is something we often overlook because as you plan, you're always planning for the future and you're not expecting that something's going to throw a wrench in your plans. Well, it, I, I think what you have to look at though, Ken, uh, Tim, is it's not just the officers that are behind you that are stakeholders. It's the entire lodge. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'll be honest with you. I think your sideliners, the ones that aren't officers that sit on the sidelines, those are actually more important stakeholders than your officers. Because while the officers might be the ones that are continuing to work on and execute the plans, if you don't have buy-in from the rest of your lodge, it doesn't matter what you try to do. It, it, whether you accomplish or not, the success of the project won't necessarily happen, happen the way you want it to. And I think the other side of that is you're not going to accomplish everything you set out to accomplish. I mean, my last year as master was 2020. I accomplished what I did in 2019 and that's about where it ended. Right. Um, and it's, it's now left to, to my senior warden who is now sitting master of the lodge to pick up where I left off. And hopefully through those six year planning sessions, and through all of our talk as, as officers, we've aligned on some things and he's going to carry that torch, which I think is important. And I, I think handling those changes with grace and humility and going back to humility right. is important, right? Because if you, you know, if you get to that point and nothing is going the way that you want to, and you're just, you know, you're raging, you're raging against that, the fact that, 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 that things are not going the way that you want to, then then it sort of erodes, you know, it, it erodes everything that you you hope to accomplish. So I, I think, you know, uh, and I, I know that our grandmaster is here and, you know, that's a perfect example of, of going, you know, to the Grand East on that, on that very long journey and then having something. And I know, you know, obviously many grandmasters um, have, have experienced this with COVID and, and being able to then, you know, sort of pivot and, and adjust and, and keep things positive and keep things moving forward and, 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 and do it with a certain amount of grace, which he did. So, uh, you know, I look at, I look at examples like that um, as, as very important examples for all of us to be able to, to, to make sure that we handle uh, those changes in, in that, you know, in, in the, the adversity uh, in the right way. And it's, it's especially important to Scott's point that the lodge puts the appropriate people in the appropriate chairs as they're going through that line. Yes. Because I know to brother John Ramsdell, he says that, you know, Rich Johnson, who is my successor is doing what I just mentioned. And it's important to understand that we put those people there because we trust them to sit in the East, govern the lodge, and also to, to hopefully keep that message alive and, and, Keep the initiatives moving. Well, that goes back to the point, though, Tim, is that everybody has to be in harmony. Everybody has yes. to be in sync. Uh, and, you know, it could very well be that, you know, when, you know, maybe I had some initiatives when I was in the East. When I left the East, the Lodge thought, you know, I was off my rocker and, you know, they want to pivot. And if they do that, I have to understand that that's the will of the Lodge. You know, that's the harm. In order for me to keep harming the lodge, I have to understand and come to grips with the fact that the lodge wants to go in a different direction. You know, it, it's something that's very difficult for, I think, for all of us when we sit in the East. Uh, you know, at one point or another, we have to be reminded of the fact that it's not about us. 
It's not about us being master yes. of the lodge. It's about the lodge. And it's really hard for a lot. I mean, I know I struggled it when, when I was in the East. You know, I want to do this and I can't because the lodge culture was set a certain way and I knew I couldn't change the culture. So, you know, I had to come to grips with that and, and move to a different initiative that I thought would be of benefit to the lodge, which I thought the lodge would work with me on. So there's a question in the chat, and I think it initially came from uh, from Adam Gleason, but has mm. been uh, re-asked by Right Worshipful Dave Ackridge. How would we define set the craft to work and give them proper instruction, which is the role of a master? <laughs> Hand him a book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to give this one uh, over to our grand lecturer. So I, I think there are two categories um, and two or at least one or two sections of each one. So there is the, the sort of the managerial and leadership piece, right? That, that would be the same for most organizations. You have to define what your goals are and you need to instruct uh, your officers and the brethren what you want to accomplish. And you need to, you know, to follow through and, and execute. It's, you know, it's, you know, any chief executive, uh, there's tons of project management involved and you, and you need to make sure that everyone is, is well communicated with and understands the direction that you're, you're wanting to go in. Then there's the, the, the Masonic part of that, right? Set, you know, set the craft to work and give them proper instruction, which is, um, you know, the, the labor of a lodge is, uh, is, is ritual. Um, and giving them proper instruction is not just the ritual itself and, and how to do the ritual, but educating all brothers as to what masonry is and how we can, you know, go from the rough to the perfect ashlar. Um, if, if you, and you don't necessarily have to be the one to do that yourself, meaning that, you know, you, you don't have to have all of the information and all of the knowledge and all of the education to, to communicate that. But what you have to do is you have to set up and, de and, and delegate and bring in, and bring in folks and, 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 and right worshipful acreage is a good example of that as education officers, right? We, we bring in those folks to be able to provide uh, more light to our brothers through, through continued education and instruction facilitated by the master. We have to, if we don't give it ourselves, we need to facilitate, um, uh, you know, our, all of our, every single brother in the lodge, their advancement within the craft and, and the goals that, that they have to, to make themselves uh, better through the craft and, and those aspects of Freemasonry. Um, and again, and I'll get a, and those that know, right. Uh, you know, ritual and education, right. This is what we've been talking about. Um, if we are able to do that, um, and instruct brothers as to, as to what the nature of Freemasonry is and allow other brothers to come in and, and help, but be the catalyst for that. I think that then, then you accomplish sort of the, you know, sort of the profane and the, the Masonic aspects of, of, of that statement. Well, that was a mouthful, Chris. And you covered pretty much everything, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm seeing in the chat, I, I have to give a shout out to our grandmaster. Tim, you might want to read what he wrote because I think it sums it up pretty well. Uh, yeah, well, so the most worshipful uh, grandmaster says, respect your brethren at all times. Delegate appropriately to maintain balance and help brothers grow. 
And I think this is this is the most important sentence, in my opinion. Never ask anyone to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. Yeah, amen to that. It doesn't mean you need to be the one doing it, but if you're unwilling to do it, you should never, ever ask someone else to do it for you. Well, the question you actually have to ask is if you're unwilling to do it, should it be done in the first place? That's a, yeah, I think that's a great way to put that. You know, but I, I t- you know, with, you know, the grandmaster covered it, covered probably things much more succinctly than we ever could. Uh, but I do have Especially to agree. Especially me. Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but, but I'll be I'll be I'll be honest with you, Chris. You you did touch on you know probably one of the single biggest challenges of sitting in any uh, officer role. There is a management role, and then there is a leadership role. Right. And being able to decide, you know, most of us can't do both. I know that there are those extremely rare individuals who can handle both, but I think most of us fall in one bucket or the other. Uh, and then we attempt to do the best we can with the one we're not good at. And we ask for help. We ask for guidance. Right. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm a district deputy grandmaster. And I think if the grandmaster was on this uh, podcast with us tonight, he'd agree that, you know, I probably sent him more than a few emails and made him more than a few phone calls because I don't have answers and I needed guidance. Uh, but I think that's one of the biggest challenges of a master when you go talk about setting the craft to work and giving them proper instruction is understanding what that instruction needs to be. Right. And for most of us, it means asking the question of our district officers, of our grand line officers, uh, past masters of our own lodge, uh, reach out to the master of the lodge in the next town over, you know, what, what, what do you see this as, as the part of it? Uh, I think it's important to also understand that when you, at least here in New Hampshire, we're told we're supposed to read the grand constitution. We're supposed to have it read in our lodge, you know, as part of our installation ritual. Uh, you know, what you need to do is you need to take a time and open up the book and read something in it. And if it's something that strikes you as, is important, if it's something that you feel your lodge needs to come up to speed with, take five minutes, take 10 minutes of your meeting and spend it discussing that piece of the, of the constitution. Uh, you know, you talk about the ritual. Nothing says you, you know, the master should be able to at least be proficient with the ritual. He may not know all of it. I mean, I'll admit when I went through the East, I didn't know all of it, Uh, but I at least knew enough to know this is the way I want to see it done. It was in, you know, it was the way the lecturers were teaching it to us, the way the Grand Lodge wanted to see it done. Uh, You know, a few tweaks because it's St. Mark's and we had some particular things that we did, but I had a vision in my head. This is what I would like to see. And you can't, if you don't have a good solid understanding of the ritual, you can't teach that to somebody else. You know, you can't teach the floor work unless you've done the floor work. So I, I think that's where a lot of it comes into is, is that, you know, you're giving practical instruction. You're not necessarily giving theoretical instruction. Uh, and, 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 yeah. And to that point, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to continue. No, 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 no. No, I just, you know, you know, I've known so many excellent masters who are just not ritualists. They, 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 they know, they, they know that they're not, you know, strong in that particular area. And, but they're strong in very important key areas of, uh, of masonry, you know, uh, you know, the heart, you know, maintaining the harmony of the lodge, you know, keeping in such and communicating with your brethren, being there to reach out and, 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 and extend a helping hand to a brother and soul, yeah, I, you're looking for the soul of a lodge, right? And 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 there are there are masters that are that soul and can inspire brothers 
to, to do great things. And those types of masters are excellent as much as masters that are, you know, very strong ritualists or, or very, uh, very uh, knowledgeable and passionate about areas of Masonic education. Um, but you, what you do is you augment those areas that you uh, aren't as strong in with, you know, with brothers and with programs and, and, and with things that can help to do, you know, to, to, to bridge some of those gaps. And I think sometimes as masters, we feel as though that it all falls on us individually to do all, to execute on all of those things. And I don't believe that that's true. I, I believe that you're sort of the worshipful cheerleader of the lodge and you need to make sure and, and facilitator to make sure that if you don't have the strength in a particular area that you find, you know, find folks that can, that can fill those gaps and, and uh, you know, and, and provide benefit to the brethren. Well, I, I, th I think there's also a, a piece of that where, you know, if you find someone in the East who actually is an inspiration to the lodge and, and you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to see one or two of those types of masters. What I've noticed is, is that it wasn't so much that they understood that they were inspiring others to do better and to work harder for their lodge. Because what I saw was a lot of the lodge rallied around that individual. Oh, well, we've got to do this. Let me step up. I'll take care of this for him. And it, it was a very different culture for that period of time because you've got a guy who's basically inspiring everyone to do their best. And everybody's stepping up and filling in the holes without that master even necessarily asking for that help. They just did it. And he was graceful enough to accept it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something that's, it's very rare to see. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, the lodge was, was a wonderful place to be in for those couple of years. Well, and, and brother Feldman makes another good point down there. It's important to understand the strengths of your officers because you're absolutely right. A master can't do everything, That's no matter how much they want to try. <laughs> he has a secretary for that. Well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's that's a different podcast, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think what's really interesting to me is, to Chris's point, not every master has to be an excellent ritualist. And I think that, to Scott's point... Well, hold on now. I'd like every master to be an excellent ritualist. <laughs> Spoken like a true I, grand lecturer. I couldn't say that as, as grand lecturer and get away with it. But again, strengths, strengths and weaknesses. But I think that a lot of times somebody shows an aptitude with the ritual. And one of the first things that happens to those individuals is they get thrown in the line somewhere. Because ritual excellence is so hugely important. And I've seen excellent ritualists who don't necessarily make great masters and putting somebody in the line just because they can perform fantastic ritual is not necessarily the right decision. It, it, it isn't. And, and guess what? There are plenty of brothers that, you know, I look at, at the ritual as being the responsibility of all of us. I mean, obviously each chair has, has ritual that, that is crucial and necessary to learn, but if we all look at it from the perspective of it being the responsibility of all the members that can participate in, 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 in learning ritual, then, you know, it doesn't have to be, there are places within the ritual to be able to bring brothers in and to allow them to participate in conferring light on our brothers and our degrees without running a lodge. 
And, and I, you know, that's something that uh, I hope that we can continue to sort of play, play up is, is the idea of having that be a way for, for, for brothers to participate um, in, in, in the, the work of the lodge without, without having to, to step in line to run it. Well, and I think it's, it, you know, to hearken back to a previous episode, I, I think that plays into the retention piece because you may have a brother who absolutely loves ritual and you stick him in a chair and you lose him because he doesn't want the other responsibilities to go with being an officer. Right. Yeah. But, you know, he's perfectly willing to step up and do something for a degree or for, or, or to help out when, when you're short an officer, but they don't actually want to be an officer. And then you have the opposite. You have people who want to be officers who don't want to really do all the ritual work. You know, is it the right choice for the lodge? That's, I'll leave that up for another podcast, another uh, discussion. But I think it's one of those things that you have to take a look at. Are you actually going to drive a good brother out? Because, well, he does ritual real well. So obviously he needs to be an officer. You know, and, and it's, it's, that goes back to, you know, the master balancing things. You know, it would be better off to go over to the brother and say, you know, you know, uh, you know, I go to Tim and say, Tim, you do a fantastic job with ritual. Can you fill in and do this? Or can you help us out with the next degree by doing this part? You know, versus, you know, the great Tim, I loved what you did. Here's, you know, your spot as senior deacon next year. You know, it's, it's you know, not everybody wants to be an officer. Yeah. And to, and to that and to that point, I think one of the most important thing a master has to do in choosing his officers is and this also goes back to a previous episode around around some of the same subjects, and that is setting expectations, right? Uh, you know, letting guys that are playing with the idea even of of you know wanting to step into line, you know, to be very clear early on, sort of what those responsibilities are, because I think sometimes what happens is, you know, um, we like the idea of being an officer, and then. If, without knowing, you know, over time, then other things begin to, other responsibilities begin to creep in. And um, perhaps, you know, the master may not have done as good of a job in sort of outlining what those responsibilities now, not only now, but in the future, because we have to remember that if somebody enters the, the line, if it is a progressive line, they will be, if if they are elected master of a lodge. So the mindset and the understanding of what, uh, what it takes to be a master, what it takes to be an officer of the lodge and what the, the each officer's responsibility is, is something that needs to be learned perhaps even before somebody, uh, somebody is actually installed in that office. And, and I think that, you know, in, in, in communicating that some of the brothers that, that may not understand or want to do all of the, you know, those other elements of what it takes to be a master may, may, may think about it a little bit differently. Um, so again, it's the, the, those expectation setting um, pieces are extraordinarily important. I think. I think expectation setting is huge. And I think the problem we have, I think a lot of times is, is that we're just, we, and I hate to use the word, assume that people know what those expectations are. Well, yeah. you've been sitting in the lodge for six months. You know what the expectations of the junior deacon is, you know. But we forget. Know, I, you know, we, yeah, we forget how how how, uh, for lack of a better term, esoteric that you know Freemasonry is not from a, not from an education standpoint, but or from a knowledge standpoint, but just from all of the little ins and outs of what make what makes a lodge run. Oh yeah. Well, um, I know that Tim knows all about you know the the expectations of entering a line, don't you, Tim? 
Well, I mean, I've said it here before. I I was I was asked. I was raised in April, and October I was asked to become junior steward. I was told that I needed to bring pies every other week, <laughs> and that was it. Ten years later, I find myself walking up those stairs right behind you, Chris, and and putting on a, a very tall hat and and staring across the lodge that I was now responsible for. Almost 200 years of history that I was made the steward of. And certainly, I, I realized by the time I was junior deacon, uh, the, the depth of the waters I was in, but expectation setting was, was certainly not something that was was important at the time when I was asked to join the line. And it became something that I think is is critically important as you're doing anything in masonry to make sure you set. Ex- We've talked about it over and over again in the last this, this episode and the previous three. And the master is the one who is responsible for communicating and making sure that the message is communicating. The secretary is your best asset or should be your best asset in that but the master is the one who's got to get the word out well i think it's important that the master i mean especially someone who's been elected to be master uh and i realize all lodges have different ways of approaching these things uh you know my own lodge you know we elect three months before the the required window to install officers so you've had an opportunity to have conversations with officers uh, and I think that it's one of the things that a lot of masters should take more advantage of is once you're elected, sit down and have a conversation with the, the folks who, who might be your appointed officers. In fact, if you're senior warden and you're relatively confident that you're going to be elected, you can have that, you know, if I'm elected, would you be willing to right. sit as this office? And if the brother says I, I, I'd consider it, then you can have a conversation. Well, this is what I'm expecting out of that office. You know, I think so often that, that we miss that opportunity and suddenly, you know, a brother sitting there, he's been in the line now for four, six years. He's sitting in the middle of the line and goes, what did I sign up for? You know, I'm oh, not absolutely. ready to do this. You know, the, the first time that they're required to go to a Grand Lodge session, what do you mean I got to go to a Grand Lodge session? Well, that's part of the gig. You're, you're a warden now, you know, uh, and, you know, they don't realize that they have to do that stuff. So you know, it, it's I think it's a big missed opportunity with that setting expectations and having the conversation because how many individuals go through the line and we never see them again after they sit in the yeast. And the question I always have in the back of my head is, did we burn them out when they went through the line or did they get fed up because so much of what they went through, they weren't told about in advance. They weren't given a heads up. Hey, by the way, you'll need to do X, Y, and Z, you know, by the way, you're going to get, 30 phone calls a month like Tim gets, you know, and, you know, it's those are the types of things that they don't understand when they go into the line and and no one really does a good job at communicating it. So, I mean, I realize that there's life that gets in the way and brothers that, you know, they, they have other priorities once they leave the East. But I'm wondering, you know, like the sideliners, how many do we miss out on after because they stopped coming because we didn't set that expectation right. We didn't have that conversation. I'm I'm a big fan of putting the immediate past master to work. I think it allows them to gracefully exit the East and sort of uh, reintegrate as a member of the lodge who isn't in, in the officer line. I'm sitting as chaplain in Rising Sun, and, and I think it gives me something to do and keeps me engaged. And I think that's a, a really important um, thing to do. And and Brother Feldman is there in the, in the chat echoing this, keeping your past masters involved and and 
certainly they are fonts of information. They have more knowledge about the way the lodge has run historically than you and, and well, using them in any capacity. And that's an important aspect to, to look at, Tim. Uh, I, like Chris, I, I sat ten, a tenure as a secretary of my lodge after I sat in the East. I also sat as marshal for a short period. Uh, but I think it's not just getting the map, past masters involved. It's getting them involved and then listening. Like I said, you know, earlier we talked about the, well, that's not the way we did it my my year. You have to listen to what comes after. You can't just switch off right. when you hear that. So often we just all switch off because, oh, uh, here comes that piece of advice I really don't need right now. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times there's a nugget there. And I'll be honest with you. It's one of the quickest ways you can turn a past master off is he's trying to help you. He's trying to give you the piece of information that you need because he's walked the walk. And you shut them down because you don't want it's just a past master. I don't want to listen to it right now. It's we, we're we a little quick way to turn a past master off. Yeah, we have to be seeking that out rather than you know, I mean, obviously we want past masters to be there and to and to offer that advice, but we should also be seeking them out. And I, I think I think that that goes both ways. Uh, you know, when you do have a decision that that that's challenging and you need advice, you know, obviously you've got your wardens and your officer line, but you also have those those men that have uh, that that have shepherded the lodge, stewarded the lodge, as was mentioned before, you know, through, and they've made mistakes, and uh, you know, and they've learned from them, hopefully, uh, and and so utilizing that, reaching out to those brothers, I can't tell you how many times I reached out to past masters of my lodge um, to to seek advice. Um, and, and I think that that, that has to, that has to be a two way street. Well, I, I think it also depends on the individual, but I do think asking not necessarily a past master of your lodge, but a past master in general, because sure. some lodges, you know, the past masters, they vanish, you know, you'll have one or two that are around, but the vast majority aren't there. You don't necessarily have the support that you'd like, but you should be able to be able to pick up the phone and call and talk to another, uh, another master or another past master to get that insight. You know, again, I was lucky. I could pick up the phone and say, hey, dad, I got a question. You know, right. he, he had walked the walk and it made it a very easy conversation to have. But I also lucked out because I had a couple of older past masters. They, you know, they were masters from 30 years ago that, you know, as I went through the line, I cultivated a relationship with them so I could ask those questions when I got there. You know, and sometimes, you know, we butted heads because, you know, they're looking at something from 1960 and I'm looking at something from 2000 and it's different. But once they understood mm -hmm. that there's a difference, you can have a different, you can have that conversation. Look, I'm looking for advice on this. And, you know, they're a, they've got a ton of information, but you have to work that relationship. You have to understand that, you know, they've been there and you have to respect that. I think you brought up a really good point, Scott, in that it's not necessarily just the past masters of your lodge either. Because a lot of times those conversations can be clouded in, in, history and, that may not be relevant and emotionally charged too exactly and i i can't i've certainly leaned on the past masters of my lodge when i was sitting in the east but i've spoken to both of you more often than than i thought i would certainly you know scott you and i you were my district deputy grand master so i leaned on you heavily but when i had a question about how something might go in the lodge and i didn't need 
necessarily the emotionally charged response of, a, of an invested past master. Turning to somebody like Chris, who, who knows the people, knows the, the lodge culture, but isn't necessarily invested in the tradition and, right. and the culture of Rising Sun as much, was an invaluable resource for me. And I think that's that's something that you know a lot of masters don't realize is that it's not just the past masters of your lodge. And if you don't travel, you're never going to meet people like Chris. You're never going to interact with your district deputy grandmaster enough to feel comfortable asking them those questions. And I think that's hugely important and something that, you know, coming into the seat, I never would have thought that I'd reach out to a past master of another lodge or I'd need to talk to the district deputy as much as I did. And and having Chris and having Scott there as resources was invaluable to me. Oh, you're welcome, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> no, but I, I think it's but I think yeah. it's it's one of those things that you know a lot of brothers don't realize is that you know yes, you are a master of a lodge, but that lodge is part of a district and part of a jurisdiction and ultimately part of a fraternity and a brotherhood. When I was in the East as master, I got phone calls from other masters. Hey, I heard this went on. What you know, you know, how did you handle it? You know, or hey, I hear this is going on. Is there something I can do? You know, do you need to bounce an idea off me? You know, it, it's, but it goes back to what you just said. You've got to travel. You've got to make yourself accessible and available. I mean, and it's hard for a lot of people to do that. They get stuck in the, well, I'm master of my lodge and, you know, that's where I'm focused. Well, but you're not. You're part of a larger, you know, body of people. Yeah, and sharing those experiences uh, again, you know, uh, because we're the lodges are also very different um, culturally, you know, and and how they operate uh, on a day to day basis. That those sorts of conversations and that sort sort of knowledge is 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 very very beneficial. Sure, because it helps you get a different perspective on stuff. And I'll be honest with you, even when I'm not talking to a master, I'll talk to some of the brothers and we'll have a conversation about something and I'll say, well, what about this? And I'll get the something along the lines of, gee, I never thought about it like that. And that's what I feel my role is more than anything else. I'm just trying to help you solve the problem, help you to think through it. I'm not necessarily here to give you a solution. I'm here to help you find it. Right. And right, right. Worshipful. I'm sorry, Tim. I just wanted to comment on what right worshipful lad said, which you might've. No, <laughs> that's that's what was about to come out of my mouth. Uh, Same uh, thing. Which was, which was sort of the, the seek out, listen, and, and then make your own decisions. You have to assimilate, you know, I mean, ultimately you, you are the master of the lodge, right? So you do have that decision ultimately to come to you and weighing all of the, the information that you're assimilating and then, and then coming up with an informed decision. Um, based on, based on all of the knowledge that you have. And, you know, ultimately, you know, one of the, the challenges about being any sort of leader, um, whether it be masonry or anywhere else is that, you know, you, you, you know, it's easy to sort of get into people pleasing mode, um, which you, you do want to please the brethren to some degree. I'm not saying that you, you know, you want to go around it like a bull in a china shop, but at the same time, you have to, have uh, get to the point where you're confident in those decisions that you that you make, and that ultimately, you know, those those decisions are are, are based in you know not only the 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 counsel that you've you sought from other past masters and other brothers, but ultimately what you feel is is right for the lodge in your heart. So we've talked a lot about what it is to be a master, and we've all the three of us, and certainly many members of our audience, have sat in the east. So 
you know, we're at that one hour mark and I think we're going to wrap up the conversation, but I'd like to ask each of you, what, what piece of advice would you give to uh, either a master who's about to ascend to the East or somebody who's thinking about joining an officer line? Start with you, Chris. Uh, listen, pay attention, travel, um, but be confident. And, and, and the confidence comes from, from experience and, and a breadth of experience as you're going up the line. Um, don't uh, make sure that you're there at every, every aspect of, of the, of your officer journey to understand that you are there to serve the lodge and do everything that you can with every decision that you make in order to, um, in order to keep the lodges, uh, and all of the brethren's well-being. Uh, at the at the at the center of everything that you do, and I think that if you do that, and and you show that again, it, it comes down to humility and heart for me, um, and 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 strengthened in 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 decision making. Uh, if you do that, I think you're going to be in in good shape. And read the Constitution, understand the bylaws, understand how lodges and how Grand Lodge work. Because if you do those things, then you're going to be much more comfortable in your decision making process, and you're going to be armed with all of the all of the tools that you need to to be successful as you as you ascend the line. So now I'm supposed to come up with something to add on yeah, to that. <laughs> sitting here and chris is listing off a b c t e and i'm like he hasn't said the constitution and bylaws maybe i'll hold that one aside maybe scott will bypass it and now i got nothing look this is why i'm not a a, a good moderator or host on a, on a pod or a guest or whatever on a podcast because i'll just keep talking so I, I think i think you know to to add on to what to what chris has has said it's you know i think what a lot of it boils down to is is that you have to be willing to listen more than you speak uh someone once told me you know god gave you two ears and only one mouth for a reason uh and you should remember which is more important because there's two of them uh so I, I think it's important as a master to listen to the brethren uh and to ask the important questions that you think need to be asked I think you have to, as Chris said, be confident when you come to make a decision and that confidence only comes with time and the support of the lodge. You know, understand that you're there uh, as a servant leader. You are, you, you've got to understand that it's not about you. And I, I think if you do those things, the rest of the pieces will just start to fall into place. If you understand that you can ask questions when you need to ask them, if you're listening and trying to empathize with your brethren, and you understand that it's not about you sitting in the East, then I think all the other pieces that we've talked about tonight have a tendency to just kind of fall into place because the brother will come up. They're willing to have those conversations. They're willing to step up and do the stuff that needs to get done. So that's the kind of advice I could give you at this point. I think for what I want to say, I'm going to harken back to something Chris said very early on, and he's repeated a couple of times. Being master of a lodge is an exercise in humility. If you don't understand what your weaknesses are, or if you aren't willing to accept those weaknesses, you're never going to seek out somebody who's going to bolster those weaknesses. And understanding yourself before you take over the, the stewardship of an institution like a lodge that's been around for hundreds of years, 
without understanding where you're going to need help as you go through your term or your two-year term in the East is hugely important. And not everybody is, is capable of doing that right away. And I think it's something that is hugely important. Know your own limitations and, and surround yourself with people who will help you fill those gaps because those are the resources that are going to lead to success for you and your lodge moving forward. And the people who come behind you, if they see that you're willing to do that, hopefully it inspires them to be willing to do it as well. Because not everybody is going to accomplish everything. Not everybody is great at everything. But the key to a successful leader is knowing where to get the right answers. You bet. You can see farther because you're standing on the shoulders of giants. There you go. So, uh, Chris and Scott, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, brethren in the audience, this is going to be uh, Chris's, Chris and Scott's last appearance for a few episodes at least. Next episode, we are going to discuss the inner workings of Grand Lodge, and we're going back to our interview format. Joining me um, on the podcast will be our incoming Grand Master, currently Right Worshipful Brother Dave Collins, uh, the incoming Deputy Grand Master, uh, Right Worshipful Dan Hotchkiss, and the Grand Master's appointee to the seat of Junior Grand Deacon. So that should be an interesting episode. And I think following that, we're going to talk about some of the other organizations. I, I think the Grand Master would like to know who that is, Tim. Chris? I forgot his last name. <laughs> right Worshipful Andy Bennett. There we go. <laughs> I'm not sure if the Grand Master was asking uh, that question or, or I don't know any of these guys. Uh, who are they? <laughs> Which is not possible. And... To the most worshipful Grand Master, thank you for joining us and, and allowing us to do this. This you has been bet. a great time, and I know that uh, your term is is coming to an end. And on behalf of, of the Granite Cornerstone podcast and, and everybody else, thank you for what you've done. We really appreciate it. Uh, brethren, the email is on the screen. Please reach out to us if you have any questions. I really appreciated all the conversation we had tonight uh, in the chat. And Chris and Scott, thank you again for joining us. and. I know you'll be behind the scenes for the next episode, but it's uh, it's it's been great to have you this last uh, three, four episodes. So thank always, you, brethren. It's always fun. Always learn something new. And good night. Good night, guys. Night.